Let's open our Bibles to Matthew's Gospel. Matthew chapter 1 is our text for today. And as the choir just sang, uh, Christmas time is here again. It's a cause for celebration because Emmanuel has come to dwell. Emmanuel means God with us. And if you recall, our call to worship included John's testimony in chapter 1 of his gospel where he said, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. So in celebration of that reality, we're taking a, a small break from our series in David to focus on three Christmas messages this week. The theme is glory to the newborn king. Today we're going to be looking at the ancestry of the king in Matthew 1 verses 1 to 17. Then on Christmas Eve we'll be looking at the arrival of the king in Matthew 1 verses 18 to 25. And then next Sunday morning, the Lord's Day, Christmas Day, we'll be looking at Matthew 2 1 to 12 in the adoration of the king. So it's going to be just a a wonderful week of worship together uh, using these first one and a half chapters of Matthew's gospel uh, to celebrate the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Matthew 1 is on page 757 in your pew Bible if you need that resource. And I invite you to follow along as I read Matthew 1 verses 1 to 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azer. And Azar the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This past week I read an article on an inner on the internet titled 25 terrible ways to start a book. 
the top mistake listed was giving information in the backstory rather than starting the actual story. The third worst mistake was introducing too many characters. On this point, the writing expert said, and I quote, nobody likes meeting 20 people at the same time in real life or in fiction. So do your reader a favor and stick with a few important characters in the first chapter, meaning two or three, maybe four. Well, if you count it up, Matthew begins his first opening with almost 50 characters, and they're all part of a backstory. (laughs) So uh, Matthew, uh, going by today's modern standards, would not have made it on the bestsellers list, and yet his book is still around 2,000 years later and remains the Bible as a whole, the best-selling book in human history. Who would have thought? God thought. But why would Matthew start with a list of names? Some would say that this is creative writing at its worst. How not to get on the bestsellers list. A quick fix for insomnia. Some would say that instead of starting off with a bang, Matthew begins by boring us almost to death. But you can be sure that Matthew's Jewish readers were anything but bored when they read this introduction to his gospel. In fact, I submit to you that they would have felt like Matthew had dropped a bomb right into their laps. Because the Jews considered genealogies to be absolutely vital to their heritage, to their rights, to the land that they own, their family history. And for this reason, they kept meticulous records. And going by this record that I just read to you, Matthew is establishing the credentials of Jesus as Israel's long-awaited Messiah, the anointed one of God, the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament prophecies pertaining to the Messiah, the King of Kings, whose coming had been foretold for centuries. Matthew is a Jew writing to Jews about a Jew who claimed to be the king of the Jews. If you're Matthew, and you're attempting to prove that Jesus is God's true king, the anointed Messiah, where do you begin? You begin with his royal credentials. And the only way to verify those credentials is through his family tree, through Jesus's genealogy. When it came to proving a person's ancestry, the Jews took nothing for granted. They kept meticulous records for thousands of years before Ancestry.com came onto the scene. Search the scriptures and you will see that genealogies start as far back as the earliest chapters of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible. And they continue all the way through the time of Moses, throughout the Israeli monarchy, up to the Babylonian captivity, and even to the post-exilic period when the Jews returned to Israel to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. That's where Old Testament history ends. And Matthew picks up where the Old Testament left off, continuing this genealogy all the way through to Jesus Christ. Genealogies were crucial because they proved a person's ancestry. It was essential for owning land, for property rights, 
for receiving an inheritance, and especially when it came to meeting the qualifications as a priest, and especially as a king. One would have to present airtight case for these qualifications. And if that was true when it came to property rights, receiving an inheritance, being a priest or a king, how much more so would you need to present airtight proof when the person you're that's claiming to be king is actually claiming to be the Messiah, God's anointed one, the king of kings whose kingdom will never end. Again, Matthew would have to present an airtight case, and that's exactly what he does in reference to Jesus. Jesus's royal credentials uniquely qualified him as God's anointed king. That's the main truth that I believe Matthew is presenting from the very beginning of his gospel and the truth that I want to impress upon you this morning from the Word of God. Jesus' royal credentials uniquely qualified him as God's anointed king. Matthew traces Jesus' genealogy all the way back to David and then further still going all the way back to Abraham, the father of the nation Israel. Note again Matthew's opening statement in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This intro would have seized the attention of any Jewish reader. Most would have been shocked by such an assertion and would have immediately demanded proof of such a claim. After all, when it says that uh, when he refers to Jesus Christ, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is a title. It is the Greek equivalent of the Old Testament Hebrew word Messiah. Christ equals Messiah. So Matthew begins his book by saying, and this is a slight paraphrase, here is the genealogical record for Jesus the Messiah, who was a descendant of David, who is the descendant of Abraham. I'm going to convey to you that that is a loaded statement for it fulfills two of the most major messianic prophecies. Here are the prophetic statements it fulfills, the major ones. There's there's hundreds that Jesus fulfilled. Here are the main ones. Number one, the Messiah would be of the seed of Abraham through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And number two, the Messiah would be a descendant of David And God would establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So this is global in its significance, this kingship. And not only is it global in its significance, it lasts forever. It's a kingdom that will never end. God made these prophetic promises with his servants, Abraham, and centuries later, David. These covenants by God with Abraham and David, were unilateral. They were one-sided, God to them. They were unconditional, and they were unbreakable. They centered on God's promise of a Savior King whose reign would never end. Now, at the very beginning of his gospel, Matthew insists that these two major prophetic prophecies, uh, these prophetic promises, are fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Messiah. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you'll recognize many names in this genealogy, probably not all 
47, 48 of them, uh, but you'll recognize probably maybe a dozen or so. Uh, most of us would be familiar with the names Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, um, Boaz, David, Solomon. And let me say that Solomon, it should be noted, was not David's oldest son. But he appears in this royal ancestry because he's the son that succeeded David on the throne. Because Matthew is tracing Jesus' royal ancestry, he follows the line of descent through David's son Solomon. Luke, on the other hand, in chapter 3 of his gospel, which we're not studying today, seems to trace Jesus' biological, biological line through Mary, his mother, who was descended from Nathan, who was David's son, the brother of Solomon. All that to say is that Jesus descended both through the line of Solomon in terms of his royal right to the throne by adoption through Solomon's descendant Joseph, but Jesus also had a blood right to the throne through the biological son, uh, being the biological son of Mary, Joseph's wife. Through his genealogy, we could say that Jesus is doubly verified through Joseph by adoption and Mary biologically as the long-awaited Messiah, as the true and ultimate king. So let me talk a moment about this purposeful summary that Matthew gives in this opening chapter. Look at uh, verses 7 and 8 again. Again, there he talks about Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah. If you compare this portion of Matthew's genealogy with the royal genealogy as depicted in 1 Chronicles 3, specifically verses 10 to 12, you'll see that Matthew goes directly from Joram to Uzziah and skips the three generations of kings between them. In other words, Matthew here is not giving us a complete genealogy. He knew that they could go to the Old Testament scriptures and see for themselves uh, what we might call the unabridged version. Matthew is giving a purposeful summary for the sake of his readers. Why is that? Why is Matthew giving this summarized version of Jesus' genealogy? Well, first of all, I think he does so for the sake of symmetry. For the sake of symmetry. As Matthew notes in verse 17, all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David to the Babylonian captivity, 14 generations. And from the Babylonian captivity to Christ, 14 generations. There's a certain symmetry uh, to this genealogy that makes it nicely structured. But secondly, I would say that Matthew presents this summary to emphasize the significance of David. David was the gold standard. He was Israel's greatest king, as we are discovering in our current study on the life of David. He was a man after God's own heart, and as we read from 2 Samuel 7 earlier, God promised David that he would establish his throne forever. If you look at this genealogy in Matthew, David appears in the middle. And get this, the numeric value of his name equals 14. 
See, here's the thing. It's 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 generations from David to the Babylonian captivity, and then 14 generations from the Babylonian captivity to Christ. That's beautiful symmetry. But David, who's in the center of the genealogy, the numeric value of his name equals 14. You say, Pastor Matt, what do you mean by that? Well, I'm going to have Pastor Mike come up and explain from the Hebrew. You're not prepared to do that? Pastor Mike just finished his first semester of Hebrew, so I was hoping that we could just spontaneously bring him up and give us a little lesson. It's pretty simple to understand, even if you don't know Hebrew, which Pastor Mike or I really don't. I mean, we both took a course in it, but it's pretty tough to learn. But Pastor Mike, you correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, The Hebrew alphabet consists of 22 consonants, correct, right? There are no vowels in the original Hebrew language, but vowel points were later added for the sake of pronunciation, okay? So if you take away the vowels out of the Hebrew name David, you're left in its transliterated form with DVD. Does that make sense? So we'll throw it up. You see it on the screen, David. So it's DVD in English, but it would be Dalit, Vav, Dalit in Hebrew. The Dalit, uh, Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalit. So RD, Hebrew Dalit, is the fourth letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Vav, that V, is the sixth letter. So you have four plus six plus four equals 14. If you were making a point and you used letters instead of numbers, your fourth point would be D, right? A, B, C, D. So there is a numeric value to these letters that's recognized in Hebrew. And I just find it significant that we have 14 generations from Abraham to David, David to the Babylonian captivity, the Babylonian captivity to Christ, and then David, Israel's greatest king, who's in the middle of the genealogy. He's proving that he is descended from David. David's name equals 14. And I think there's a third reason why Matthew shortens his genealogy. And that's for the sake of simplicity. A shorter list makes the genealogy easier to remember. So a Jew going to this, they could go to the original records, which were a little more extended, but this is kind of a genealogical shorthand. They can just count up, okay, I know it's 14 generations from Abraham to David, David to the Babylonian captivity, Babylonian captivity to Christ. You know, 14, 14, 14. So it makes it easier if you're reciting the genealogy to remember the names in that sequence. Now, some of you might say, well, Pastor Matt, that's still a long list. It's too long, really, for a person to remember. But I would submit that there would be many children, as well as adults, who would disagree with you. And the reason is, is they've actually memorized a song that is based on this genealogy. Say, wait a second, you just read this long list of names and somebody actually wrote a song about this? Yeah, it's called Matthew's Begat. And it's based on the King James Version of this passage. Whereas most English translations say, even our ESV, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac was the father of Jacob, and so on and so forth. The King James Version says, Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and so on and so forth. Because beget means to procreate or to generate offspring. In fact, if you were to read 
Your Old Testament, you would see the life of each ancestor of Jesus tells a story that is part of a much bigger story that is centered on God's Son, Jesus the Messiah. To demonstrate God's sovereignty over every detail of the story, I want to draw your attention to one part of the genealogy in particular. Look again at verse 11. It says, And Josiah was the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Now there's a major issue regarding Jeconiah, who in the Old Testament is also spelled as Jehoiakim. Uh, You might have heard in the song he said that he caused the Babylonian captivity. Actually, it was the sins of many kings and the people. But he was the one that God determined was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back when it came to the Babylonian captivity and, and Andrew Peterson because he was a liar. And that you can go back and read the story of Jehoiakim. The point is that he was a wicked king and God was determined to punish him on account of his hard-hearted rebellion and sin. God delivered the following message to Jehoiakim, also known as Jeconiah, through Jeremiah the prophet. And we'll put it for you up here on the screen. Jeremiah 22, verses 24 to 30. As surely as I live, says the Lord, I will abandon you, Jehoiakim, son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Even if you were the signet ring on my right hand, I would pull you off. I will hand you over to those who seek to kill you, those you so desperately fear, to King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon and the mighty Babylonian army. I will expel you and your mother from this land, and you will die in a foreign country, not in your native land. You will never again return to the land you yearn for. Why is this man Jehoiakim like a discarded broken jar? Why are he and his children to be exiled to a foreign land? Oh, earth, 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 listen to this message from the Lord. This is what the Lord says. Let the record show that this man Jehoiakim was childless. He is a failure, for none of his children will succeed him on the throne of David to rule over Judah. Interesting prophecy. The record shows that Jehoiakim did have children, But he was considered childless from a royal perspective because none of his children would succeed him on the throne of David. None of them. This was a curse. This was a judgment that God put on Jehoiakim or Jeconiah because of his sin. And this curse on Jehoiakim, Jeconiah, continued all the way through his ancestral line, all the way down to Joseph. Now look back at Matthew 1, verses 12 to 16. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud. Abiud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azer. Azer, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Achim. Achim, the father of Eliad. Eliad, the father of Eleazar. And Eleazar, the father of Mathan. And Mathan, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. So here's the question. How could Jesus be the Messiah, the king of the Jews, when his father Joseph would have been under the curse of Jeconiah and therefore not permitted to reign? 
The answer is, Joseph was not involved in the bloodline of Jesus, was he? Because Jesus was born of a virgin. Look at verse 18 of Matthew 1, where Matthew is quick to go on to tell us, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Jesus' blood right to the throne of David came biologically through his mother Mary, but it came by adoption through his father Joseph, who was descended from Solomon. Double verification, and yet in God's uh, sovereignty over every minute detail of Jesus' genealogy, no promise, no prophecy, no judgment, no word of God is broken at any point. Notice the switchover that occurs in the family tree. To Jacob is born Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. The link between Joseph and Jesus is the only one in the entire genealogy where the phrase, the father of, is not used. Because Jesus was not Joseph's biological son. Matthew is being very specific about pointing this out because he knows that his Jewish readers would know about the curse of Jeconiah going by the Old Testament scriptures. Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, in fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. Behold, the Virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Furthermore, the pronoun whom, in verse 16, where it says, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, the whom is singular referring to Mary alone. So even the use of the singular pronoun emphasizes that Jesus biologically came from Mary and not from Joseph. Because Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, he had a biological or a blood right to the throne through the line of Nathan, the son of David. And he also had a royal right to the throne through the legal line of Solomon, which came through Joseph, which is to say Jesus' unique ancestry exclusively qualifies him to be the Messiah. And only the sovereign God who made all these prophecies, all these promises, could have orchestrated every minute detail over millennia. I know this was kind of a a jet tour through this genealogy, I'm happy to provide you notes of today's sermon. But the point I want to draw to as we come to a close is that the biblical record of Jesus' ancestry points to us two principles, two questions of consideration that we ought to take to heart. Number one, do you recognize Jesus as God's anointed king? Matthew wrote this genealogy of Jesus in the first century to Jews who would have been able to verify if this genealogical record were true. 
Turn just for a moment to Luke's Gospel. It's on page 806 in your pew Bible. Luke was a meticulous historian. And as he recounts Jesus' birth in chapter 2 of his gospel, he begins by saying in verses 1 to 5, verses which are familiar to most of you, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Why? Because he was of the house and lineage of David. To be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the end. In 1 Samuel 20, verse 6, Bethlehem is referred to as David's city. And we know this from our study as we've been going through 1 Samuel. David was born there. David tended his father's sheep there in his youth. We know from 1 Samuel that his family held an annual feast and family reunion there in Bethlehem. So it can be rightly assumed, based on what we read in the Old Testament, what we're reading here in Luke 2, that this is where the family records, the genealogical files, if you will, were kept. And where Jesus' genealogy could be verified. Just a couple miles outside Jerusalem. Matthew presented his readers with airtight evidence that Jesus is God's anointed king. There was only one question. Would they accept the proof that he was presenting to them? It's been said you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. The question for you is, have you drunk in the proof of Scripture regarding who Jesus is? Do you recognize him as God's anointed king? I find it interesting that even when Jeremiah made that prophecy regarding Jeconiah, uh, God was pronouncing this curse on Jeconiah, but it was preceded with the, with the call saying, Oh, earth, 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 listen to the word of the Lord. It was directed to Jeconiah, but the implications of God's message to him has uh, tremendous implications for all of us because it goes to the record of who Jesus is and the royal line from which he came. Do you recognize Jesus as God's anointed king? Then the second question is, do you revere Jesus as your king? See, it's one thing to recognize it, to to mentally assent to a set of facts. It's another thing to own Jesus as your Lord and Savior. One interesting feature of Matthew's gospel is that it opens the same way that the book of Genesis does. The word genealogy in the Greek is actually the word Genesis, which means beginning, origin, birth, and can even be translated genealogy. Just as Genesis is the book of beginnings, so in a sense is Matthew's gospel. It not only presents Jesus' Genesis, his genealogy, and the account of his birth, but it tells us why God sent his son to earth in the first place. 
Matthew one twenty one. the angel of the Lord tells Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. Jesus' very name means the Lord saves. How would Jesus save his people from their sins? Well, he would do it by living a perfect life on behalf of his people. You look at Jesus' genealogy, it's all filled with sinners. Some of whom committed horrific crimes such as murder, adultery, even incest. Jesus came from a long line of sinners, but because he was virgin born by the Holy Spirit, he remained untainted from original sin. And that qualified him to be an all-sufficient Savior. Jesus lived a perfect life on behalf of his people. He died on the cross for their sins, taking the penalty that they deserved. He rose again victoriously three days later, just as he said he would, just as the prophet said that he would. As we think about that, we should note that whereas every other human being is born to live, Jesus was born to die. And his birth ushers in a new beginning for all who embrace him as their Savior King. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17 that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new creation, a new person. The old life is gone. The new life has begun. So, So Jesus birth, his genealogy here at the start of Matthew is in a sense a new beginning for all those who would embrace this message for themselves. You enter this new life by believing in Jesus as your Savior King. And you express this new life by being baptized as a profession of that faith. By the way, our next baptism ceremony is scheduled on February 5th. If you would like to be baptized as a profession of your faith in Christ, see me after the service or fill out a connection card, put it in the box outside in the lobby and we'll follow up with you. It is not enough to recognize Jesus as God's anointed king. You must revere him as such. David Jeremiah, a pastor and author, correctly stated, all the Christmas presents in the world are worth nothing without the presence of Jesus Christ. All the Christmas presents in the world are worth nothing without the presence of Jesus Christ. Have you received Jesus as your Savior? And if so, do you honor Him as your King? Let's pray. Father in Heaven, we know that looking at this genealogy with all the Old Testament backstory could have been a bit heady for a Sunday before Christmas, a a bit academic. But Lord, it goes to show that you do not just give us um, fuzzy, feel-good stories that are meant to stir up our emotions without presenting to us the rock-solid evidence of who Jesus is. And how he is to be honored. How is he, he is to be believed and relied upon for our salvation. I pray, Lord, that you would have spoken to every heart here today. And that if anyone has um, been skeptical, perhaps cynical, regarding the claims of Jesus Christ, 
the claims of Scripture regarding Jesus' identity, his lineage, his right to rule the nations forever. I pray, Lord, that you would grant them an open mind and an open heart to truly investigate the claims of Scripture, which over 3,000 times claims to be the Word of God. I pray, Father, that we would take this Word seriously, that we wouldn't listen to the arrogant critics who are quick to dismiss it without even having read it themselves. I pray that we would give the utmost attention to this book, for if it is truly your word, it is the most significant, valuable thing that we can ever possibly possess. Help us, God Almighty, to take your words to heart. Lord, I pray that those of us who have embraced Jesus as our Savior King would remember, and I know this sounds trite, but it's true, that Jesus is the reason for the season. I think of Brother Brad praying earlier that you would keep us from distraction. And Lord, while I'm sure that Brad was praying that specifically in reference to the sermon that was about to be preached, Lord, we need you to deliver us from distraction all throughout the holiday season and all throughout the year because we can so easily be lured by lesser things. And Satan would love nothing else than to take our eyes off the one who loved us and gave himself for us. Father, I pray that we would be disciplined in our habits, in our lifestyle, in our daily schedules, that we would be willing to say no to certain things in order to enter fully into the significance of this holiday season. God, as we enter into Christmas week, may we magnify and honor your Son, who loved us and gave himself for us. We exalt him this morning as your people, as our Savior King. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.